Now on Sunday Extra, we're going to discuss the challenges of victim identification after tragic events involving mass casualties and how technology might improve the accuracy of the process and potentially the experience of next of kin who are faced with the terribly confronting task of victim identification. And if you've been directly affected by a tragedy like that or you find this sort of thing confronting, obviously we don't want to add to your distress, so you might want to give this next conversation a miss. The question of victim identification is, however, a tragically pertinent one after around 47,000 people in Turkey and Syria lost their lives after the February 6 earthquake. Relatives have been asked to identify bodies lined up in stadiums and car parks, and others have been buried in mass graves without identification. Many, many bodies are yet to be recovered, of course, and indeed may never be. Richard Bassett has had more than 20 years experience in disaster victim identification or DVI. Following the Bali bombings in 2002, the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004 and the Black Saturday fires in 2009. He's seen the way that DVI has evolved and he's now part of a project to test whether artificial intelligence can be used to speed up the identification process. Richard's the head of the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University and Deputy Director at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Associate Professor Richard Bassett, welcome to Sunday Extra. Lovely to be with you, Julian. Richard, as I mentioned, you've been involved with victim identification in really an awfully diverse range of tragedies. With the benefit of that experience, could you give us your reflections on the challenges that are facing authorities and families now trying to identify the victims in Turkey and Syria? Yes, certainly, Julian. The challenges are truly enormous. And this has been my experience in a number of DVIs that I've either participated in or sort of been involved with on the periphery, and there's been a lot of them. Um, the major challenge in a situation that Turkey is currently facing is the complete destruction of infrastructure, loss of power, loss of water. And the other major challenge, of course, is the fact that there are an awful lot of living people are in desperate need of assistance and help and a lot of injured people. And so it's very hard to devote resources to identifying the dead when you've got living people in extremists who need every resource that a country may have to help them. So the first challenge really is what your priority list is. And identification of the dead is not often the first priority when there's living people to be cared for. But once you're past the stage of caring for the living people and you've got that sort of aspect of the process sorted out, then you can start devoting time to the dead. And the challenges are still enormous because there's collapsed buildings, recovery of the bodies is extremely difficult. There's an unknown number. It's known as an open disaster. So we don't know the exact death toll. It's mm. not like a plane crash where you know who's on the plane and where they were sitting. So it is extraordinarily challenging from that aspect. And then, of course, the DVI process involves collection of anti-mortem records or features of a person while they were alive that can be compared to deceased people to make an identification. So you're looking at systems that can talk to the victim's families and request information about who their dentist might be. Are there any distinguishing features or marks? What clothes were they wearing? Do they have tattoos? Have they had surgery? Do they have any x-rays or medical records? All those sort of information needs to be collected from the living relatives. And when you're talking 50,000 plus people, that is an extraordinary complex logistical task and very personnel heavy because it all has to be done by personal interview. Mm. So if you get past that stage and you've collected sufficient anti-mortem information, 
you've recovered the bodies of the deceased, you've taken them to a place where they can be properly examined by forensic specialists, uh, you have a DNA lab ready to go, you have a lot of forensic dentists, you have forensic pathologists, you have mortuary technicians, you have all the staff you need to conduct the operation, you gather all your information from the deceased and then you've got a matching process of matching the information you've gathered from the families of the missing with the information gathered from the forensic experts about the deceased. So it's an extraordinarily complex process and it has evolved in small increments over the years since my first, which was the Bali bombings. But yes, and I was still interested in that. Yeah, um, and it's interesting also that although your first experience uh, was 21 years ago, uh, what have been those major technological improvements? And I suppose considering the situation of Turkey and Syria, how widely available are those technological improvements uh, around the world? That's the rub, Julian. So technological advancement in sensitivity of DNA analysis and the ability to get DNA from degraded remains. Also, technological advancements in how data is collected and saved. So there's now computer programs that are used by Interpol that gather all the data from the deceased, gather all the data from the missing, put them all into one big database, which can perform some automated matching, but also gives you a good way of manually going through and, and um, matching people case after case. In Bali bombings, everything was done on paper. So mm. there was no computer programs. There was no – and DNA was sort of – well, it wasn't in its infancy, but it was fairly rudimentary compared to today. So now we get results of from DNA out of far more degraded remains and also we can get the results far more quickly. So there has been advancements in those sort of techniques. Um, in terms of dental records and dental record matching, that's pretty much been the same as it's always been. Fingerprints is always the same. So it's really in DNA and – computational data matching abilities where things have changed. But you need, of course, lots of infrastructure and money to run these technological DVI processes, and a lot of countries don't have that. I mean, I can give you Thailand as an example where mm. they that's where they first used the computer software that was developed in conjunction with Interpol. And there was 5,000 deceased in Thailand, and after about 14 or 15 months, we identified probably 3,600 of them. So it took this was an awful after the long Boxing time. Day tsunami in 2004. Correct. This was after the yeah. Boxing Day tsunami and we had hundreds and hundreds of forensic experts from all over the world, mm. like 30 different countries, and it took that long. So if you apply that logic to something like Turkey, where you're looking at 50,000 dead, you're looking at years and years and years of full-time, hundreds and hundreds of forensic experts trying to identify people. Yeah. And it's just an impossibility. Yeah, the, the scale of the challenge is just, just mind-boggling and heartbreaking. Yeah. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Associate Professor Richard Bassard, Head of the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. And Richard, some people, when they hear talk of those records being aggregated and some automated matching, might sort of hear some red flags in terms of issues they think about in terms of big data. And the use of facial recognition technology is certainly a controversial subject when it's applied to the living. I know there's also been vigorous debate about it if it's used to try and assist with victim identification. And there have been a couple examples of that in Ukraine, both MH17 and then amidst the current war. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so you're right about, you know, the red flags that are raised by use of big data, but I will emphasise that the traditional DVI process and dental records and medical records, there's no central repository of all that information. You actually have to find the victim's families, find out who their dentist is, 
go mm. to the dental surgery, pick up the dental records and bring them to the central location where you're collating all the data. So we don't just press buttons and get data from sort of massive databases. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little different with facial recognition, of course. And in Ukraine, the most recent example, there's a company called Clearview AI that started using their facial recognition software to identify the dead in Ukraine. Nobody knows how accurate it was. Nobody knows how reliable it was. The program certainly wasn't, or the algorithm certainly wasn't designed to identify dead people. It was designed to identify living people. And from what I understand, they simply scraped the web for every photo of every person they could possibly get. So there's no consent with people providing their photographs. Yeah. There's no idea that your photograph is being used for this purpose and it's on a, on a software system somewhere on the other side of the world. So they had lots of ethical issues and no one really knows how well it worked. That's fascinating. Obviously, ethical challenges, but also the prospect, I suppose, of much quicker and more effective identification. And you can intuitively see what the benefits of that might be. Uh, Richard, could you tell us about the research project that you're currently involved in and what potential you see for its application in DVI? The project has been running for about a year now and we're working into us at the Department of Forensic Medicine. We're working in conjunction with Defence Services Technology Group and we're working in conjunction with the Faculty of IT at Monash. So we have defence intelligence people, we have computer boffins, and we have forensic people sort of all working together as a group. Mm. And the first stage of this process is to test all of the current commercial facial recognition programs on all of the images of deceased people that we're ethically approved to use and see how well they work. So we mm. have a large number of image, facial images of deceased people from undamaged and look like they did the day they died, mm. right through to skeletal remains and traumatised and decomposed remains. And we have all their anti-mortem photographs as well when they were alive. So we can compare how these facial recognition algorithms work in a situation of trying to identify deceased people. What we expect to find is that they won't work particularly well mm. um, and either current algorithms will need tweaking or we'll have to go back to basics and start to build our own algorithm. That's fascinating. What sort of time frame is your research working on? What would it take to, to translate the sort of preliminary research you're doing into something that could be applied in the event of another mass scale tragedy? Yeah. So the moment we're working ourselves and we don't actually have any funding at all, we're just doing it out of interest and the need and the desire to do something for the world in terms of being able to identify people in these sorts of situations. Mm. So if we kept going the way we were, it might take seven or eight years to get anywhere with PhD students and the odd postdoc and et cetera, et cetera. But if we had a significant amount of funding, and we're not talking sheep stations, we're probably talking, you know, I don't know, seven or eight million dollars to mm. run a program over, over three or four years, I think we'd probably have a, have a good working prototype within a couple of years. And in a practical sense, so if we think back to Thailand, the day after the tsunami, there was 5,000 dead people. They'd all drowned, by and large. So they weren't decomposed. They weren't damaged. They were looking the way they were the day before they were found. If at that time we had this sort of technology up and running, it would have been a matter of people at the same time as recovering a body, you take a photograph of their face mm. while they're undecomposed. And I think if we had this technology up and running then and with all the identity cards from the Thai national people and all the passports from all the tourists, et cetera, et cetera, I think we probably would have identified, you know, a really significant proportion of those people in the really early days after the tsunami. 
Um, but as it was, it took a long time to collect the bodies. Then there was nowhere to store them. There was no refrigeration. So it ended up by the time we got there, there was significant decomposition and significant physical change to the remains. That's why it took us well over a year to identify the ones we mm. did by the traditional means. So there's great potential there in terms of uh, short-term responses and improving the efficacy of identification yeah, and in future the disasters. cost implications. You don't, yeah. you don't need the massive infrastructure. It's just an, it's an enormous sort of paradigm shift. I wonder also, are there technological improvements that will make it more possible to identify individual victims when there has been significant decomposition and things like that? Yeah, so that's the next stage of this project. Mm. So you'll recall that there's a specialty or a discipline called forensic art where they have a skull of a victim and they put matchsticks in a replica of that skull at tissue depths and they build a plasticine face on, mm. on a replica of a skull and that's called forensic art. And so they build a face based on their impression of what the tissue depth should be. But the research we're doing is using post-mortem CT scans of deceased people. And when you look at a three-dimensional reconstruction of a post-mortem CT scan, you see the bones, but you also see the face and the flesh and how the flesh relates to the bones and how it sits on the bones. And we're pretty sure we can train an algorithm with a large training set of data to be able to reconstruct a face on a skull that is quite accurate. And then we combine that with some of the latest DNA techniques. So some of our latest DNA techniques can start to give you information about how a person looked. So they can do skin colour, eye colour, hair colour, ancestry, freckles, no freckles, et cetera, et cetera. So when you start combining some of that phenotypic DNA information with a machine learning reconstruction of a face on a skull, can we get to a point where from a completely deflesh skull, we can reconstruct a face that a family member could recognise or a facial recognition system might be able to recognise. And if you think about the, I have to say, millions of people who are buried in mass graves from various wars and various mm. tragedies around the world, you think of Iraq, you think of Syria, you think of Ukraine, you think of Haiti after the 2010 earthquake, you think of all those millions of people who are buried in mass graves, who have relatives still wanting to know where they are, perform their last rites, et cetera, et cetera. Um, something like that could be an extraordinary game-changing bit of technology to start solving some of these wicked problems of these long-term mass graves. Mm. It is a, a grim but necessary business and though the prospect of those transformations is really fascinating. Richard Bassett, thank you so much for joining us on Sunday Extra. You're very welcome, Julian. That's Associate Professor Richard Bassett, Deputy Director at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and Head of the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.